You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. All right, guys. Welcome, welcome. This is uh, Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served, where we give you the latest at the intersection of law and Hollywood. Uh, I am your host, Ebony K. Williams, joined by my lovely co-host. I am Mari Fagel, and I am looking forward to talking about all the cases we have for this week. A lot's happened since uh, we last got together two weeks ago, Ebony. So uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, we had a little family and work hiatus, but we are back with you and really excited. So this week's case of the week, actually, we had a development just this morning in this case. This is the now murder case um, for the victim, Rashida McBride. Um, If you're not familiar, this is a a young woman who was shot to death uh, on the front porch uh, in Detroit, uh, this young woman, 19 years old. The story, as we know it so far, is that she uh, had been in an accident, was seeking help, and uh, she ended up going to uh, the front porch of um, this gentleman. I'm trying to see his name here. Theater oh. Paul Wafer. Oh, and there it is. Yeah, Paul Wafer. What's interesting here is Renisha McBride, this story reminds me of two stories and it's yeah. sad it's sad it's sad that it does yeah. one is very obviously Trayvon Martin right uh because this happened November 2nd right and what's today today's November 15th so there was a little bit of a lag not as much as we saw in Trayvon Martin and of course the other yes, case certainly. it reminded me of is the one we talked about several weeks ago in North right. Carolina yes. where very similar circumstances mm-hmm. he got into a car accident knocked on a neighbor's right. door for help but there I want to get your opinion on this there I think the neighbor herself mm-hmm. the homeowner took appropriate actions mm-hmm. she called 911 I can understand having a fear when someone shows up to your house in the middle right. of the night she called nine at that point, obviously, the cops um, took it way too far Absolutely. because they shot him to death, and that was the onus on them. Here, the homeowner took it into his own hands. Yeah, the homeowner took it into his own hands. Uh, Theodore Paul Wafer, 54 years old, um, shot this woman to death. So, uh, I guess the reports are saying not necessarily at a particularly close range, which I think evidentiary will be a distinguishing factor. Because of See, when we talked about this story yesterday, Mari, it was like, if they're going to bring charges. Mm-hmm. In my mind, they had to bring charges. Absolutely. There was really no choice because here was the issue that many people had with the Trayvon Martin case, as you correctly brought up. There's some similarities. Even if it's self-defense, last I checked, self-defense is an affirmative defense mm-hmm. that must be proven in a court of law. It should not be presumed on behalf of law enforcement. So to me, the DA absolutely had to bring at least these second-degree murder charges. Also, she brought, and very smartly here, also charging with manslaughter uh, to make sure that there's a wide range for the jurors to select in terms of a fitting crime. And uh, that's why I just want to explain. There are yeah. certain differences. So This Michigan law, the self-defense law, which states that residents have no duty to retreat while in their own home if they have an honest and reasonable belief of imminent death or great bodily harm. As you said, that's an affirmative defense. So charges are brought and then he, as a homeowner, will likely argue and I will argue likely fail in that defense. Right. 
their stand your ground, which was, and certain other legal theories are immunities. They're immunities. And an immunity means that you are prohibited or the judge, uh, the prosecutor is prohibited from even bringing the charges in the first place because you have an immunity. This is an affirmative defense, as you explained, that he will likely bring up as his defense in trial. And I want to get your opinion on this. So I just read the law. Mm -hmm. It is a if you have an honest and reasonable belief in right. great bodily harm, do you think a 19-year-old woman mm-hmm. walking up to your door in the middle of the night, you have an honest and reasonable belief of great bodily harm, and you don't call 911? Right. If he had called 911 to me, that is reasonable. And he said, someone's knocking on the, my door in the middle of the night. I think they're trying to intrude, though uh, the prosecutor in the case said that she was just knocking mm-hmm. on the locked screen door. There right. was was never any sign of a forced entry. entry. So I don't think that defense will work for him because it's not reasonable. No, and I think important to point out too, Mari, with the law, the reasonableness standard is not subjective. It's not, no one cares what Theodore Paul Rafer actually thought. The standard here is that of the objective man. So the jurors are going to be forced to not think of what they personally would do or what this man personally is going to testify that he thought what a reasonable person under like circumstances would have likely done. And I don't think, as you're saying, Mari, that any reasonable person would see a 19-year-old allegedly she was kind of maybe intoxicated, kind of disoriented, no weapon, unarmed, Mm -hmm. uh, and think I am. How do you take those facts and now leap to the conclusion of I am in such great bodily harm or danger that I have to use deadly force to protect myself? I don't see how he makes that leap, Mari. Well, he also may not be able to make that leap, which is why he has another defense that he claims. He claims the shotgun went off by accident, Mm -hmm. which I don't know what kind of evidence they're going to have to prove that. Mm -hmm. That, to me, I think will be very difficult for jurors to buy. Went off by accident and yet shot her in the face. face. It is from a far distance, so that may be in his favor. Um, What I am concerned about as this case progresses to trial is whether they are going to try to use the fact that she was, she had a triple the legal limit um, Mm -hmm. of alcohol and marijuana in her blood. She had hit a parked car six blocks away. I don't think that evidence will be admissible. As we saw Trayvon Martin, they tried to bring in right. the fact that, you know, he um, had smoked in the past, he had yeah. truancy and certain things right. because it's character evidence, meaning you don't want the jury to base their opinions just off, oh, this is a bad person, so they must have done a bad thing. Right. Though I there's going to be a fight over it. Well, I his will lawyer see, is going to say that yeah, it's more that it's than relevant. character evidence. Yeah. Right. His lawyer is going to say that it's relevant as to how it influenced her aggressiveness or behavior mm-hmm. and therefore played into the psyche of the defendant. That's what they're going to argue. I think they have a stronger argument than that of, of the Trayvon yes. Martin case for sure. Um, a little bit more correlation there. But at the same time, Mari, to your point, it, it can be very prejudicial. Um, the judge will shy away. Again, this is another high-profile case. This is on the front page of Huffington Post today. This is on the front page of a lot of news, national news outlets, um, a judge will always want to shy away from anything that's going to be deemed overly prejudicial in those type of cases. And I think that, like you said, they are going to make a strong case for bringing it in here because they said that she was bloody, disoriented, and appeared to be confused after the crash. And 
the defense will try to use that to their benefit. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not that's admissible. As you said, he's facing second-degree murder. He's facing Mm -hmm. manslaughter. He's facing um, felony gun possession. Um, I was surprised to see in Michigan uh, second-degree carries a life sentence. Can the maximum is life for that? Surprising. A lot of states don't have a life sentence for second-degree. Also in um, the... Adrian Peterson case, mm-hmm. second degree murder. I think it was either Iowa or Idaho. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> carries with it also. Uh, the Yes. <laughs> yeah, um, but this case, I, I want to get your opinion on whether you said, you just said it was on the front page of Huffington Post. It's getting a lot of press. Sure. Do you think this case would have gotten nearly as much press had this been a let's white say, victim? Two years ago before Trayvon Martin. That's what I was oh, getting at. Okay. If it had been a white victim, this would got would have gotten press. This happened November 2nd. Mm-hmm. The night of November 2nd or the morning of November right. 3rd, it would have been. Right. Uh, you know, but though we did hear about this, I started hearing about this case uh, about a week and a half ago. So right. shortly thereafter, yes. and there hasn't been that much of a lag time in charges. Right. But I think the way this case has been handled, yes. both in the justice system and, in the, and in the media, has been very much affected for the good yes. by Trayvon Martin's case. I agree, Mari. I think that the Trayvon Martin case um, and the way media and social media, I have to give a lot of credit for social media mm-hmm. and change.org petitions and Facebook statuses and things like that. Um, no longer do prosecutors' offices have a lot of time to play with these types of cases. And mm-hmm. that's why I just knew for sure this um, prosecutor in this case, Kim Worthy, had next to no time to, to think or deliberate you you got to bring the charges because, of course, we have, um, I guess, Al Sharpton has spoken out about this. And that's kind of what he does now. I was watching an interview with him. And um, he I'm not the biggest Al Sharpton fan or whatever. But I will say one thing I do like that he does is he uses his national platform to bring immediate attention to cases that might otherwise not get that same media attention. So that's what he does. That's what he did in Trayvon Martin. That's certainly what he's doing in this case. Um, I believe he was also involved even in Jonathan uh the young man from North Carolina, making sure that prosecutors' offices know that people are watching and expecting them to be accountable. But with Trayvon Martin, you said, and I completely agree, that social media was key because socialmediachange.org, Facebook, got it that national media attention. Mm -hmm. I think in this case, national media was on it Mm -hmm. early on. You know, this I saw this story on HLN you know, a week and a half ago. And it wasn't that push for social media and then finally for CNN and these outlets to recognize, oh, this is a story. I think they recognized it on their own and I think that is because of Trayvon Martin. But that's why I want to ask you what you think about the prosecutor today when she uh, announced the charges. She said the charging decision Mm -hmm. has nothing to do whatsoever with the race of the parties. Whether it becomes relevant later on, I don't know. Right Now, this was a white male 54-year-old homeowner, and a black female 19-year-old woman. Yes. I understand what her statement is. I do. I honestly feel like even if this was a white-on-white crime or black-on-black crime, I think charges would have been brought regardless. But do you think the crime would have happened at all? That's what I'm saying. I I think that race could at some point play into um, the prosecutor's 
theme of the case or theory of the case that this young woman was shot because she was deemed to be suspicious because she was black. Of course, that argument has to be made. In fact, I think that was a flaw in the Zimmerman trial. I don't think that the uh, the Zimmerman prosecutors effectively used race like they should have. Um, Not, you know, and and again, not using a race card in a way that's inapplicable. But I think that's a solid argument, Mari. I think that you can't escape the fact that tell me what about him was so suspicious. Uh, He wasn't armed. Uh, he wasn't, you know, gregarious in size compared to George Zimmerman. What about him, other than his race, made you feel so afraid that you felt like you had to use deadly force? And I think that's going to be the same argument that prosecutors can make in this case. The problem is George Zimmerman didn't take the stand. Right. No way will Theodore Paul Wafer take the stand. No. Uh, and it's also very difficult to bring out that evidence through other witnesses because, like we said, that's character evidence of, you know, friends and family testifying as right. to his personal beliefs about race. There's the judge has to be the gatekeeper there sure. and as to what comes in and what doesn't. No. Um, but you can raise the suspicion. That's the thing. Yeah. Like he won't take the stand. It'll never be conclusive. It's not really the kind of thing you can hardly prove anyway, which is why it's so hard for federal charges and, and for these things to ever make it to the level of hate crimes or things like that because the evidence just is hardly ever there. But the prosecutors could make the argument. They could be suggestive in um, – challenging the jurors to come up with another logical, plausible reason that this man was so afraid of this woman that he felt, again, deadly force, Mari, not, you know, not beating her, not, you know, assaulting her, not, you know, I understand there's no duty to retreat, and I respect that, but there was a million other things that could have happened coming short of shooting this woman in the face. Starting with calling 911. Starting with calling 911. Starting with, you know... Locking your door. Why are you opening your door if you're that afraid? I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, that's why there's certain details that we don't know that that's Mm -hmm. why we're going to keep following the case on this show. Because I do want to know more about his theory that the gun went off by accident. Because the fact that she was shot from a far distance, I'm not sure if it ever even got to the point of him opening the door. If it was Mm -hmm. some sort of screen and it went through. We don't know the details. um, But it's definitely something we'll be watching. I will say though that is very difficult to prove. That accidental shooting theory. Mm -hmm. uh, Because people don't understand. They think you can just claim accident. No. The state will put witness after expert witness to Mm -hmm. testify about ballistics. Because they can trace hesitation in, uh, in pulling a trigger and things like that. So that's going to be a hard or a hard thing for him to show yeah but i think i think it'll be even harder for him to show self-defense that he had a reasonable and honest objective belief do you think that he'll plead this out do you you think he'd take a manslaughter plea at this point if if they if he's someone like george zimmerman no so we'll watch i I mean i don't i don't know what this homeowner is like apparently Mm -hmm. neighbors say they were shocked Mm -hmm. and that he's a very nice man but you know i don't know well We'll definitely be watching this. Um, yeah. Okay, well, we got a busy docket this morning, <laughs> yeah. Mari. Tell us what's on the docket for the week. Now, moving on to on the docket, uh, we have a lot of celebrity news stories to cover, mm-hmm. starting with our favorite. <laughs> He's on here every week. <laughs> and wow. by our favorite, I mean only that it's, it's with Garagos such consistency yeah. that, you know, we talk about him. It might as well be called on Chris Brown's on the docket. (laughs) (laughs) Basically. So, okay, Uh, so now Chris Brown is being sued by this woman, Deanna Gines, um, who claims she filed a suit for battery and assault in July because she claimed that she was at a club after a concert in Anaheim that he performed at mm -hmm. and that he shoved her, pushed her to the ground, and then she um, hurt her leg. Mm -hmm. Now... 
Mark Garagos, I want to, I'm going to get him into this show because mm-hmm. this cross complaint that he filed on behalf of Chris Brown has mm-hmm. to be one of the strongest language that I've seen in a cross complaint in a long time. So Chris Brown is now countersuing right. Deanna Gines for defamation, mm-hmm. claiming that she not only made up the story that he pushed her, but that she knew it was false and right. said it anyways, which is the standard for defamation for a public figure like Chris Brown. Uh, okay, I want to read the cross-complaint, then I want to get your opinion. Okay. So hopefully we get the, um, don't hit the buzzer. Miss Gines was observed <laughs> by witnesses as being heavily intoxicated, falling over herself in a drunken stupor throughout the night. She was observed by witnesses haphazardly screaming F y'all to employees and throwing her clothing at security. She was also confused about which leg she was claiming was injured. She's either a complete liar seeking a payout or attention or both from Mr. Brown, or she seeks to deflect blame for her own humiliating drunken escapades. Woo! I think that's what they call uh, in modern uh, culture a read. Um, <laughs> that, that is a read from Margaragos. Yeah, I mean, I think he has to put that out there, right? He has to tell the judge um, or try our fact, look, this this is what we believe her motivation was behind even filing the complaint. And you're right. I mean, for defamation, he has to be a knowing uh, untruth. I mean, she's going to have a difficult time here. I think this is, um, I don't think this lady has the pockets to come for Garagos or Chris Brown in this type of civil way. So, yeah, I absolutely. Because if it was a real assault, then where are the cops? Where's the 911? Where's... She claimed that she complained and then she was kicked out of the club. Okay, well, whatever, girl. I'm sorry. Like, at the end of the day, it is so difficult to file these types of civil suits for those types of uh, torts, you know, against uh, the deep pockets of somebody like Chris Brown. But I thought it was interesting that he came back at her and countersued for defamation, which is also very difficult for celebrities to ever win on defamation because you have to prove not only that it was false, but that the person and knew it was false and said it anyways with a reckless disregard for the truth. See, I don't think it's that he's trying to even go further with that. He's I think just this trying is just to intimidate a, her. To, to, to intimidate her. So this is, you know, she dismisses this and this goes away. Because he's got, quite frankly, enough other legal woes. Yeah, so um, <laughs> before the the buzzer hits, I, I, I do want to just update, because we never got to it, Washington, D.C. Yeah. And him in the hotel and yeah. claiming that someone photobombed his picture. So Allegedly, then he yeah. hit the person, used an expletive. Yep. Okay, Chris Brown, save for another week. <laughs> okay. At least here on Justice is there. We'll see about his probation. Okay, okay. so Catherine Jackson, this was interesting to me. This mm-hmm. is, again, I think another was another tactic sure. and strategy, but I think that, she, that she, people are upset about this, especially MJ fans. So apparently 12 months ago before the AEG trial right. uh, came to play, she was willing to write a highly sympathetic declaration in which she would say that she believed Conrad Murray was not a threat to others and deserved to get out of prison on bail during her his appeal. Hmm. She allegedly in this declaration that was never filed was going to say, I know Dr. Murray was held criminally responsible for taking Michael away from me, but I do not object, however, to the court granting him bail pending his appeal. I believe he has suffered in jail for over a year and can't pose a threat to our community. She was using that as a bargaining chip because Mm -hmm. if she was going to sign that letter, she was going to have him sign a letter um, supporting her wrongful death lawsuit against AEG. And Dr. Conrad Murray never signed the letter, thus she never signed the letter, and Conrad Murray got out of jail two weeks ago kind of looking for that same support from her that she was offering a year ago and guess what? Now she says, no way, I don't ever want him to be treating patients ever again. Hypocritical? 
sounds like quid pro quo to me, Mari. I mean, it's, it, it is what it is. Of course, she wanted something for her support, um, something that she at that time needed. He didn't give it. I'm sh- if anything, I'm upset that she even offered to be supportive to him at all. I mean, that's the and thing. And that's what MJ fans were so upset about because I yeah. put this story up on Twitter a couple days ago and they were upset the fact that she would even write this letter in the first place. Yeah. They saw money signs. She was doing this because she wanted the money from AEG so she was willing to go to the person mm-hmm. who murdered her son mm-hmm. to um, and, and, and write this letter for him. And the, what's troubling about that is everything I've ever heard about Katherine Jackson, including what we heard from uh, Brian Panish on the show here, is that she's just this incredibly warm and sweet person. And that's what I've always seen from her in public persona. I mean, ignoring that right now. Um, <laughs> she, the problem is, why would you put Conrad Murray back in a position to cause harm or possible death to other people? That's the problem. Okay, and we're gonna we're gonna watch because he's trying to get his medical license again in Texas. So we'll have news on that yeah, uh, if he succeeds or happen. if he fails. Yeah, okay. Next story: mm-hmm. Spike Lee. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that this story is back in the news. So right. I don't know if you remember when mm-hmm. George Zimmerman when this first happened. Yes. Um, Twitter followers. People on Twitter posted the address of what they thought was George Zimmerman. It was right. actually a man whose um, middle name was George. His last name was Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. And it's actually an elderly Elder, couple, couple named mm-hmm. Elaine and David McLean. Right. And Spike Lee tweeted out the address yes. of this elderly couple. Mm-hmm. And he apologized immediately after. And then, not only that, he reached out and apologized. He also settled with them for $10,000 back in March 2012 Mm -hmm. because they claimed that they were forced to relocate. Right. They are now coming after him again Mm -hmm. for a lawsuit that may be valued as high as $1.2 million because they say that his tweet caused them... Con- to continue to receive hate mail, threatening email, and influenced inflated media presence outside their home. Mm-hmm. <sighs> was the $10,000 not enough? Well, here's the thing. This is going to turn on, because I, I saw, you know, he was recently um, sat down and interviewed by Oprah uh, on, on her Next Chapter program, and she asked about this. Mm-hmm. And he basically, she was like, what was your intention? He said, I, I, I had, you know, I don't know what my intention was. You know, yeah, he's basically he said, being reactive. Uh, but angry is not a justification for stupidity. There's nothing I can say to defend what I did. It was stupid. Yeah, it was stupid. He gets that. Being Spike Lee, I'm so sure that this was not just a cash-to-hand type of settlement deal. I'm sure there was something drawn up to outline the terms of what this settlement encompasses. And so, honestly, Maury, that where that the four corners of that document, because I'm positive there's a document, that will be controlling when it comes to this issue of whether or not future damages and future harm were included in the $10,000 settlement. Because I would be surprised that his attorneys would leave... Do, do a settlement agreement and leave and it not open leave to that open to interpretation. Future litigation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So okay. Yeah, we'll see. Okay, now this was a fun trial to watch this week. Alec Baldwin's crazed stalker uh, Genevieve Sabarin. Um, she is going to Rikers Island for mm. seven months. It's a long time. Uh, yeah. Mostly for stalking, which mm-hmm. she was found guilty of stalking the 30 Rock star, but also she got an extra month mm-hmm. for contempt of court this week because she was so disruptive in court. This woman, I'm not, I, I 
can't blame Alec Baldwin for wanting her to be locked away in prison. She waged a two-year-long harassment campaign yeah. against him. They met at a dinner where he gave her career advice set up mm-hmm. by the director of Scarface, who was her boyfriend mm-hmm. at the time, apparently. Mm-hmm. And then he says that was it. She claimed that they had romantic relationships. She showed up his at his apartment. She claims they had some romp at some hotel on Valentine's Day that they had, quote, sex phone, <laughs> which she means phone sex. Yeah. Um, That's funny. And, you know, it just the trial, having him on stand talking about this, having the director claim that he really did have an affair and cheat on his wife, Hilaria, the whole thing was a media circus. Yeah. What do you think? Oh, Lord. Yeah, it was definitely a media circus. Um, My first instinct, though, is actually I'm seriously questioning this woman's um, mental uh, status, Uh, mainly because, I mean, the story with Alec is crazy, but also the um, the behavior in court. Uh, that that's the part that really kind of made me be like, I wonder if she's I mean, not to the point where she'd be um, criminally insane, but certainly I'm wondering what the mental status is. There. So you think it's better for her to be in almost like a health treatment program yeah. than prison and Rikers yeah. Island? That will yeah, I don't make think it worse. Rikers is going to necessarily make it better. But um, but certainly she needs to be kept away from Alec Baldwin and his family. I mean, he, him yeah. and his wife have a young baby. It's not a good, good situation at all. Uh, but I would not be surprised to know that she had some real serious mental disturbances. And she's still not owning up to it. I mean, the judge really laid into her. Yeah. Uh, and she, all she said back was, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm mm-hmm. innocent. So that's what I have to say. You're doing a mistake right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right in that some people, mm-hmm. the criminal justice system is so, um, and the justice system in general, is so black and white sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's either prison or, n- or not. And I hate and that. Yeah, I think yeah. for some people, um, a treatment program yeah. for mental health or for drugs, especially in the area of drugs, yeah, um, is, is better suited for these people than prison. In Charlotte, when I was a PD, we had drug court, also something that's underutilized, Mari, veterans court. Like, these people have special circumstances and conditions. No, they shouldn't be not accountable, but certainly there needs to be more resources yeah okay now in our last story i didn't even know about this Lil kim's Mm -hmm. ex-boyfriend i guess he lived with her Mm -hmm. um in a new jersey mansion um he is facing trial for six murders facing the death penalty uh his name is damian world hardy he is apparently schizophrenic, and he claims to be the Messiah. He broke up with Lil' Kim because he thought she was part of a secret society of Masons. Mm. He became unhinged in 2004, went to the Middle East, and tried to meet with the kings of Morocco and Jordan. So apparently, he's facing trial for six murders. The interesting thing here is a judge ordered and an appellate court affirmed that he needs to be forcibly medicated so that he can be sane enough to stand trial and also forcibly medicated because he is so crazy in prison that he's been attacking jail guards um Mm. lil kim hasn't said anything on this but i i want to know more about the backstory with the two of them and what happened well that's a hot mess i guess i'm stuck on the concept of forcibly medicating somebody in general i don't know how my my conscience sits with that um if they can be medicated to be sane to stand trial as opposed to then they're not sane enough to stand trial like we're seeing with Jared Lee Loughner. He's mm-hmm. the um, Tucson, Arizona shooter who shot Gabby Giffords. Right. 
he is not facing trial until he is declared sane enough to stand trial. So right. he is sitting here, and Gabby Giffords has not gotten justice, no justice. yet because of it. So I if know. medicating someone gives these victims justice because it makes him sane enough to stand trial, meaning sane enough to understand the legal proceedings of what's going on. I get that, but I also understand that we don't prosecute criminally insane people. And if you are just by your natural status incapable, medically incapable, I don't know that it's our duty as society to force you into a space of capacity. That's, I just, I don't know about that. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) I mean, I get it. I know if, if it were my mom, I would want justice, too. But I guess I understand on a deeper level. That's just that, that's just we just got to be honest. This is what I say all the time, whether it's politics, it's law, whatever. We got to be honest about what kind of society we want to be. Mari. You know, if we say we don't prosecute the criminally insane, we can't prosecute the criminally insane. And that means I say we can't force you to be sane by our standards so that we can prosecute you. It seems like a backdoor way. Well, uh, we'll follow that story as <laughs> yeah, he faced yeah. his trial now. Yeah. Um, and Ebony, yes, tipping ma'am. the scales yeah, this week. Tipping the scales. We haven't been able to talk about this issue yet. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so our question this week was Jonathan Martin, uh, for I guess now former Miami Dolphins football player, uh, targeted by Richie Incognito. Um, and why was he targeted? And why, yeah. And th- of course, this story uh, coming from the bullying or harassment or hazing, all those phrases have been used to describe the behavior displayed by Richie Incognito towards his former teammate. Uh, in Miami, and we know that right now Incognito is indefinitely suspended from the team, and Jonathan Martin uh, walked away from the team. Um, I, I believe it was like maybe just doing a meal or something, and he just got to a place where he did not or could not take it, and he he chose to leave and walk away. And he's back here in California now, and yeah. um, I have an interesting connection to this because mm-hmm. Jonathan Martin went to my high school mm-hmm. out here in mm-hmm. Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and you know. A lot of people have been talking about why Richie Incognito did what he did, why Jonathan Martin did what he did, why was he targeted. And um, I read an interesting article this week by someone who went to my high school and was on the team with Jonathan Martin. And he interviewed a lot of football coaches from my high school, Mm -hmm. his former teammates from my high school. And um, I thought it was an interesting take on it that I hadn't heard in the media yet. What was it? And he... He was basically saying that at a college preparatory school, like the one that Jonathan Martin went to, mm-hmm. football wasn't his only life. He had backups. It wasn't his only way mm-hmm. out of his neighborhood as it is for other individuals sure. on the team. And he went to a college prep school. Then he went to Stanford. He mm-hmm. studied um, literature and mm-hmm. philosophy and uh, then went on to this team and race I think again was a factor but in an interesting way Mm -hmm. one of his teammates because Richie Incognito is white and Jonathan Martin is black but one of his teammates was at from high school was saying he was upset that Jonathan Martin was reported as half black in the media and he said that he had a similar situation at UCLA's football team um even though we grew up in an environment where we were a minority, this was a black student as well right. on a football team, he said it was very difficult for me at UCLA when I turned to members of my team from the same race who refused to acknowledge I was actually black. Your white teammates would tell me because of the way I dressed, because of the way I talked, some of these guys were poor influences because of their single-minded outlook. 
Um, and he said a lot of professional athletes, this is their livelihood, their only path to getting out of the neighborhood they grew up in. We, meaning him and Jonathan Martin, were taught at an early age that showing our emotions was a point of weakness and vulnerability. Unfortunately, it's something these other athletes may never had an exposure to. So it's almost like their backgrounds. I want to get your take on that. Like, do you think some of these... Uh, coaches in this article were saying they think he may have been targeted because he had this yeah. background and because he was interested in philosophy and literature and football wasn't his yeah. only life and they were jealous. That was someone's statement. Um, yeah, okay. Wow. Where do I begin? Okay. So, um, yes, is the short answer to, to that question. Do I think it was an influence? Absolutely. Um, in the black community um, and in the greater society, because I've also heard this from non-black people, I do believe there is still a general expectation as to a singular definition of blackness or even that of um, his, you know, Hispanic races or Asian races. I do think that is a place where white privilege exists. And maybe um, some white people aren't even aware of it, that I do feel like, generally speaking, white people have more of an option to exist in different um, lanes, different um cultural um, spaces that when you are a black person, you are expected to speak, dress and look a particular way. Um, I've experienced that, Mari, growing up. Uh, of course, I was always the only black student um, in advanced classes or AP classes or um, certain other, you know, ballet, whatever. And it was, oh, you're experiencing something that is outside of my understanding of blackness, whether that's from a white or black perspective. So now I'm going to say you talk like a white girl. You want to be white. You think you are white. I mean, absolutely. That's firsthand accountability experience. So, yeah, I'm sure Jonathan Martin faced that. And on top of possible teammate, because Jonathan Martin was bullied. I mean, forcing someone to spend $10,000 on a strip club when they're not even going, calling them, leaving voicemail saying, I'm going to murder your family and using an expletive that should never have been used. And calling him N-word. Yeah, absolutely. And, um... The fact that everyone in that locker room, no one was there. Normally, I think, when someone is getting hazed or bullied, there's other people on the team, other people in the locker room that say, hey, like, you know, it's got to stop, or even the higher-ups. And that never happened for him. And I think it's because a lot of these teammates were able to relate more to Richie Incognito than they were to Jonathan Martin. Because that's what's really disgusting to me, I have to tell you, as a black person, to see other black teammates side with Incognito on this. I'm disgusted, but I get it. This is, um, I rewatched uh, A Few Good Men over the weekend. This is A Few Good Men. This is a code red. This is what happens when you take, uh, and it is, it's a gang mentality. And I, I use that very specifically, whether it's a football team, whether it's a unit in the military, whether it's a, a fraternity, a sorority. Those are all groups that operate with gang-like mentality. Um, and I'm in a sorority, so no shade, but that's what it is. And You set a standard for this is how we are. This is our code, so to speak. And someone deviates in any way from that code, the entire pack turns Mm -hmm. on that individual. And it doesn't matter if you're a different race or the same race or different background or the same background. You are different than what we have stipulated is how we operate. And you will be punished for that. And we will do what we need to do. We feel we need to do to get you in line with what we expect you to be like. And, and, And Martin refused. And this is the unfortunate consequence. Uh, yeah, I'm just wondering why the coach and higher ups at of the Dolphins weren't catching onto this earlier. I, I understand they were. They were, why. Mari. Okay, well, 
you know, I understand I, why certain teammates sided with Richie Incognito, which is why I thought this article was interesting. I think that's why. I think it because Jonathan Martin didn't live up to their expectation yes. of what a black football player should be because Absolutely. football wasn't his only way out of his neighborhood yeah. because he, he, you know, was interested in other things and they targeted him targeted yeah. him because be- of it. Just because we, we share complexion, and I tell people this all the time and they don't understand it, just because, uh, you know, we might share brown skin, that does not mean that we are always all received in the same way Um, people definitely identify based off of class and culture uh, sometimes ahead of actual racial identification and it um you know i'm not saying a judgment call on that it's just it is what it is and like i said that's been my experience um and it's one reason that when i got to chapel hill where i went to undergrad unc chapel hill and i've shared on the program before and you know this mari i don't come from a world of of privilege i'm the first person in my family to go to a four-year college and complete it so it was so refreshing to be around other black students who appreciated um, academia in the way that I did and service in the way that I did. And it was the first time, honestly, that I felt like I was around people of my own race that I felt similar to um, because I, that wasn't my background. And so in the article, when they talk about people alienating you for not f- identifying uh, the values they, uh, they value, it's truth. It's yeah. truth to it. It's absolutely truth to it. And um and it's a tragedy and it's a shame. And maybe this situation, Mari, the one thing that can come out of it is shedding light on it. But you make a point. This is not this is a different media spin. This is not the stuff that we're hearing. On, yeah, that's on the news. why I, I, I thought it was interesting because yeah. so many people are focusing on, you know, the word he used right. or um, just kind of or that football culture, the locker the room NFL, culture of, oh, yeah. you know, some people say, oh, that, you know, they always make the rookies get breakfast sandwiches yeah. and in the but morning and do things rookie? like that. And, and, and why this far to make yeah. someone spend $30,000, yeah. um, you know, just to impress them. And, it's and this was the yeah. first time I read an explanation that I could understand no, as makes- to why. Girl, this makes 1,000 complete sense to me. They probably also, you know, coming from Stanford, coming from a college prep school like you guys went to, um, that's why he spent $30,000 because, oh, you're this rich boy, snobby elite background. You got it. Spend it. That was the attitude. They're trying to break him. And um, very sad. And I really wish that we as a society, and I'll speak now specifically to my community, the black community, that we allowed more space for diversity within our own culture because it really would alleviate people from having to be so extreme. Yeah. It does us a great disservice. So disgusting. Yeah, and I encourage people to go on and read the articles in the New York Daily News by Michael Van um, because it also talks about kind of the way he was raised in the high school we went to. You don't respond by fighting. You respond by reason. And Mm -hmm. you, you know, you're not taught that being vulnerable is something that should never be shown. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I thought it was interesting, an interesting take on it. Uh, we want to hear your take yes. on it. Yes. So why was Jonathan Martin targeted? Was it because of some of the reasons we're talking about? Give us your opinion. Uh, tweet me at Mari Fagel. Tweet me at Ebony underscore K, E-B-O-N-I underscore K. And we can share your thoughts on our show next week. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Absolutely. Uh, we will be back same time, same place next week for the latest legal news at the intersection of Hollywood and law. Thanks, guys. See you next week. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, Dario Christian, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network. 
If you have questions or comments, tweet us at BHL Online or email us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. For more exclusive content, visit blackhollywoodlive.com. This has been a presentation of the Black Hollywood Live Network. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.